Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crute, one of the editors of Film Comment. In the introduction to her new book on James Benning's Ten Skies, critic and scholar Erica Balsam writes that, There are films that present themselves as complex objects, but which are in fact quite simple. And then there are films, rarer altogether, that appear simple but harbor tremendous complexity. Such is the deception, the allure of Ten Skies, a film messier and more profuse than my immediate love for it had allowed. Balsam joined me to talk about the book, out now from Firefly's Press, and the many-sided approach she took to writing about one of the most deceptively simple and beautiful films in Benning's fantastically varied body of work. We also discussed where and how Ten Skies fits into that filmography, the ways Benning plays with his own identity, how ten static shots of clouds can be a powerful political statement, and much more. Welcome, Erica. Do you want to introduce yourself and give us a little background on where you are today, what you're up to? Sure. My name's Erica Balsam, and I'm in my office at King's College London in London, where I teach film studies. Last time we spoke, you had a very cool Robert Kramer milestones poster in the background. And now you have you, it is in your office. That must have been at your home. Mm-hmm. You have a different poster. Can you, can't can quite you tell it. what it is? Is it a Fassbender? It is. It's an original German release poster for the third generation. So okay. it has Hannah Shugula uh, dressed up Whoa. as sort of a clown holding an enormous machine gun. And then on the top, it says, I don't throw bombs. I make films. RWF. It is very cool. So you have two very cool posters. We've established that. Thanks. Those are those are the credentials that we that we require for for people on the film comment podcast. <laughs> um, but also, you've you've just written a really fascinating book, Ten Skies, and I believe it's out now, available mm-hmm. for purchase at least in New York City bookstores. I've seen it, and this book is part of a series published by Fireflies Press of I believe it's called the Decadent series, and. That is a play on decade, and the decade is 2000 to 2010, and it's a series of books in which they've asked writers to choose a film from each one year from that decade and um, explore it at book length, and you have chosen Ten Skies by James Benning. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about how this project came to be? Sure. I had written a very short piece for Fireflies, which was a publication that the editors of uh, Fireflies Press, Giovanni Marchini Camia and Annabelle Brady Brown did prior to starting the Decadent Editions book series. Um, And I had written a small thing about um, Albert Sarah and starting from this thing that Sarah said once in a Q and A, which was that um, this particular scene in Birdsong was one of the top three scenes of waking up in the history of cinema. And so I kind of like took that as a prompt and then thought a little bit about, you know, why he thinks that scene is particularly great, what's at stake in a scene of waking up, what the other two scenes could have been. Um, And I say all of this by way of kind of giving a brief introduction to the general orientation of Fireflies Press. And by that, I mean that they are, I think, interested in writing that somehow breaks a little bit with the conventions of academic writing, definitely, but also the conventions of film criticism in its more mainstream review-oriented guises. Um, And so they got in touch with me and said, you know, we're doing this book series, would you like to contribute? And I knew with that invitation that, you know, I wasn't being asked to write like a BFI classic. I was being asked to write a book about a single film that could really play with the form of writing and the voice of writing. Um, And there were some years that were already taken when they asked me, and they also didn't want to repeat any filmmakers that they had covered in the Fireflies publication. So for instance, they had already done one on Claire Denis, so that was out. And I mean, she was maybe somebody I would have chosen. 
And I knew probably that many of the other people in the series would focus on fictional like art house narratives. So I sort of thought like, okay, I'm someone who concentrates on artist film, experimental film and documentaries. So I should pick something maybe in that vein. And I started thinking about what would make sense in the time period and also a film that would lend itself to a book length study that would be accessible perhaps to see, or if not that, you know, the book could be interesting to people that perhaps maybe haven't seen the film. And so all of this eventually led me to choose Benning's film, 10 Skies from 2004, which is a film I like loved deeply when I first saw it, but I also felt that I, in retrospect, I came to feel that my understanding of the film that I took away from that first screening was totally insufficient and wrong. And so I kind of begin the book from there and I say, you know, this is an attempt to do better. Yeah, I think that that's one of the most fascinating things about the book is just how it sort of shifts registers and modes of criticism and writing from personal to sort of semi-academic. There's a lot of research clearly involved. Of course. It's just a really, it's a, it was a real pleasure to read. Thank you. And I have only seen, I'm going to start this off by admitting that I've only seen 10 Skies on YouTube. <laughs> It's a different Which experience. Which is obviously, uh, and maybe we should start also for listeners who are not familiar with a brief description of, of Ten Skies, and maybe we, we might get into more of Benning's career, but for those who are unaware, do you want to explain what this film is? Sure. So it is a 16 millimeter sound film comprising 10 shots. Each one is about 10 minutes long. So it's the length of a 400 foot reel of film and uh, the camera does not move. And each one depicts a Southern California sky. The sound is not sync sound. It's a kind of um, audio collage created by the filmmaker reusing some sounds from some of his previous films or using sounds that he recorded at a different time from the image. Um, but that might not be obvious to a viewer um, who didn't know that beforehand. Um, we could easily think that we are watching, you know, a, a documentary moment, 10, 10 minutes, you know, of, of unfolding reality. But in fact, that's not quite the case. And it's a part of a body of work that is often um, spoken about as being minimalist, interested in duration in you know, looking and listening. And so there's a sense that it's very easy to describe this film and, and, and think of it as this very simple object that is a kind of formalist exercise about light and movement and time and so on. And it is all of those things, but there are also many, many other things that creep in as we watch very closely. And so the book provided me with a chance to really explore some of those um, maybe less obvious aspects of the film. Yeah, I mean, I think that the sound itself is, is sort of a hint at how complex something that appears to be so simple really is in this case. And you write, a, you write quite a bit about the use of sound throughout. But this film also came right after 13 Lakes for Benning. And I think 13 Lakes he described as like maybe the most difficult project he could have attempted to make. And so 10 Skies has always seemed to me to be sort of like the next level up. Like 13 Lakes was like the most difficult. And then he was like, you know, how could I make this more difficult? Yeah. We won't even include the landscape. 13 Lakes is uh, what it, much like 10 Skies. It is what it sounds like. In this case, there's a, there's, a bisecting horizon line almost in every shot. And you have a lake and sky, uh, the horizon separating the lake, the image of the lake from the sky. And the film is a lot of uh, very much interested in the play between the light from the sky and the lake itself. And what's fascinating about that film and 10 Skies, I think, is that when you start from this point of this kind of what sounds like a really basic romantic or an attempt to capture beauty. Mm, mm. What makes this, this both of these films so interesting is that something else creeps in 
what creeps in is in fact human encroachment on the environment. So we might think, I mean, among other things, but we might think initially that these films are celebrations of the natural world and maybe to a degree they are, but I think for decades, really, Benning has been really interested in thinking about industry, about land use, about the way that humans shape their environment and damage their environment. And I think we see that come up really, really strongly in 13 Lakes and then also in 10 Skies. We have, you know, the second shot looks really stunning initially, but then as you continue to watch it, and you see the kind of colors that emerge from this strange kind of blooming cloud, uh, you realize that this is smoke. And you know, you know it's a fire. And in fact, you know, it's a it's a brush fire in, in California. So, you know, from there we can connect outward to all of these kinds of ideas that are about, you know, environmental degradation, air pollution, and so on. And you hear the helicopter on the soundtrack. Absolutely. And yeah, it's beautiful, but also kind of um, disturbing mm-hmm. once you realize what's happening. And that is also, it also is sort of a quotation of a self-quotation, which is something he commonly does. Yeah, he's a real copyist of, of himself and of others. So we talked about when you first saw this film, and you mentioned at one point that I think in chapter six that you've been in a lot of cinemas with uh, to see films that you've loved, and it's and those cinemas have mainly been filled with men. It's true, and and I true. found this this is something that I found really interesting to think about is is James Benning's work as sort of this like masculine. There's an aspect of it where he's like this kind of heroic individual, rugged individualist hiking out into the woods with a 16 millimeter camera dedicated, although, you know, he no longer works in 16 millimeter. But at the time, yeah, I think he was considered to be sort of a, the a, a warrior for the analog uh, mm-hmm. medium. And so I, I'm I'm really interested in that image of him and also how he subverts that. I mean, I, th- I think that people might be attracted to his work initially because of that. But I think if you are attracted to his work because of that, you're kind of falling into a trap of some kind. 100%. I mean, I think that Benning takes as one of his subjects the violence of masculinity. And that is not, you know, uh, happening in a very strong way in Ten Skies. I'm thinking of other films of his or or installation works of his. But I think that, yes, on the one hand, he seems like this heroic outsider figure, the kind of rugged cowboy loner on a motorcycle driving around America. Well, there's that uh, the documentary exactly. uh, the where he's driving like a, a hot rod out to shoot 13 Skies. Right? Yeah. And it's this like muscle car. But then on the other hand, I think you're totally right that to assume that he fulfills that role in all of its kind of dominant forms, I think really misunderstands what he's doing because I think he's interrogating that first of all, but also, you know, really thinking quite hard about the violence of America as a country and the role of masculinity within that. I think that that's like a very consistent thing throughout his work. Um, and it's funny, I was having drinks with a friend a couple days ago and he had just read the book. And this is someone that like, I, I know, but he doesn't know me super, super well. Um, and he, he was like, this book is really great, but you know, I really felt like I understood somehow your, well, your daddy issues. <laughs> and what he meant was that, the, I mean, he didn't mean it about me personally, because you know, for the listeners out there, one thing that's important to say is that, you know, this book for me is personal in a way, but I don't write about myself in it. And I'm really not interested in, in really, you know, it's not one of these hybrid criticism memoir type books. I love books like that, but it's not the one that I wanted to write. And so even though it's not personal, somehow he saw that at the core of this book was some kind of ambivalence around patriarchal authority. I mean, you asked the question, is Ten Skies somehow a masculine work, I think, at one point? Yeah, and I I back away from answering that question because I think it's very difficult to answer. But I did feel somehow like it was important to raise because there is, you know, 
a really strong rowishness to certain sectors of film culture. And definitely, you know, I have experienced the strangeness and the alienation of being a part of that. But also, you know, I love many films that typically are thought of to be really kind of like hard edged, masculine, structural works of, of the American avant-garde. And so it was also a matter of me questioning my own kind of taste formation as much as anything else. It's so obvious, I guess, that I never even thought about it. I mean, which is like, which is maybe says more about me. Yeah, but that's, Um, you know, isn't that the way that myth works? You know, like myth passes off the contingent and the historical as just the way things are, you know? And I think it's like really good to kind of like crack that open a little bit Um, and to say certain things that maybe seem obvious, but to to instead kind of like hold them out and say, you know, maybe we need to look at this from another angle or... Yeah. Yeah, and we see in like Deseret and uh, you know this critique in Four Corners, other bending film. I mean, almost all of his films, this critique of uh, American America and masculinity and and like America as a settler colonial nation. I mean, like yeah. all of this, you know, it's not there in this really overt on the surface way all the time. In some films, I think. Some films, it is. Yeah. Um, but even when it's not really at the forefront of the work, I think it is, you know, running through the practice in more subterranean ways. I mean, it's quite interesting to me that Benning is a filmmaker who makes works that are somehow impersonal in the sense that, you know, he devises rule-based structures. He you know, doesn't move the camera. There are no marks of like authorial subjectivity in the way that we might think. But on the, at the same time, they are tremendously personal works. And if you if you watch them kind of as a group, you see that there are these kind of obsessions that are running throughout them. And I think all of these questions around, you know, Americanness, violence and masculinity really, for me, are a core, core part of the work. Yeah. And it also made me think about uh, his use of pop music and like the, his choices, which are... Yes. You know, frequently he made a movie called L. Cohen a couple of years ago uh, when Leonard Cohen died, I think. And then, you know, he often uses Bob Dylan songs. And that's sort of evoking a similar kind of like 60s anti-hero. And also like generational identity. I think there's a sense that music in Benning's film somehow becomes the place where all of the kind of like emotion that has been expunged from the rest of the film can just like dive back in through the use of these like very particular pieces of music. But Ten Skies has none. No music. No music in Ten Skies. I think also you mentioned the Peter Gittle's Clouds film. And throughout the book, you talk a lot about other depictions of clouds and historically photography of clouds and cloud theory in the in the 19th century. Can you talk a little bit about like how you kind of went about picking and choosing these different studies of clouds? Yeah, there are definitely things that I regret um, not putting in. Like this week, there's been all this discussion of Yoko Ono's Sky TV. And like that work was one that I sort of thought about and then ended up not including. I started, first of all, from things that I knew or that I just kind of like brainstormed of like shots or films that I knew where the sky functioned in some very important way. But then I also did research like there's a book by Dominique Paini that's a very small book in this um, French series uh, devoted to tracing particular motifs across the history of cinema. And he has one that's about clouds, but it's only in fiction feature films. And so actually like he gives lots and lots of references, but I think the only kind of overlap between us is in um, Godard's passion. Um, I think I was pretty interested instead in thinking about art historical references, history of photography, and even, you know, not even just images of clouds or of the sky, but also thinking about the serial form and how Benning's use of the serial form in Ten Skies was like or was not like some other very kind of canonical examples like, you know, Warhol's 
early films like Kiss, where we see a series of different kisses. Yeah, I think you say that the difference that is that he's act- actively trying to find the most beautiful sky or the most yeah. full image. Yeah, I mean, Benning said something like, oh, there are never any good skies in Southern California. And it's like, what? It's like, no, like the sky's always there. But the point is that he was really looking for particular kinds of skies that would yield something of compositional or graphic interest in some way. So in fact, he took a really long time. He took like months to make these shots. And I really think, you know, like to anyone who wants to go out and try and remake this movie, like good luck. You know, it's it, it, it looks simple, but it's actually really not an easy thing to do to get images that give us the kind of, you know, movement and complexity and visual interest that we see like across these 10 skies. Which is something that that you talk about too, this narrative aspect, the, the way that we read narrative into these images, you know, even when there is no narrative content there, watching each one of these shots, you become kind of, you're starting, I mean, you're not sitting on the edge of your seat necessarily, but I do find myself kind of like wondering what's going to happen next, <laughs> like, and all, but also filling in what's going to happen next with the, with the world outside the screen. So yeah. like, what, starting to make conjectures about what's happening off screen and wh- how that's going to influence what I'm seeing. And that happens through the audio, but also through the image itself, I think. Yeah, it's like an, a, an enormous kind of prompt for the imagination. You know, there's like this, you know, the, the frame is never going to move. You know, you know, there's never going to be some kind of intrusion of the world below. And yet it's there through the sound. And so you have this time to sort of, you know, imagine what what is happening just beyond, you know, the the frame line. And that's, of course, like a device that narrative films use all of the time, you know, especially horror films. But generally, the promise is that the what the out of frame, the mystery will be revealed, whereas here it never is. So it's sort of preserved as this imaginative space. Um, in ways that I find super interesting. Yeah. Do you know Adam Phillips, a psychoanalytical writer? Oh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he has a essay called On Boredom, but he talks about boredom as sort of this um, transitional space in which we're looking for the next thing that we want to do. Yeah. But in a lot of ways, I think that, you know, Benning's work does this better than... <laughs> there are some others out there for sure some durational uh works of music i think tend to have a similar effect and i wouldn't call it boredom in the same same way that we commonly refer to it but it puts you in this state of mind where you're speculating not just about the narrative but you begin to speculate about the meaning of the image the meaning of the sound and then projecting that out into different directions to the point where like you're kind of not looking for something to hold your interest but the the that open space becomes the thing that holds your interest, that opening of spaces. Yeah, and it's a kind of open space that we rarely have, I think. You know, like the the idea from Adam Phillips you mentioned reminds me of this quote from Walter Benjamin. He says, you know, boredom is the dream bird that hatches the egg of experience. And the idea is that there's kind of like a radical or revolutionary form of boredom that is really different from the mundane boredom of just like doing your job or, you know, whatever it is, but instead is about a kind of clearing of time where you somehow disengage from, you know, the normal habits and attitudes and and rhythms of the world. So as to then, uh, you know, enable some kind of resensitization um, of perception and of thought and, and, and so on. And I think that, you know, this film, I describe it at one point in the book as a performance, you know, so not just as like an object or a text, but actually as a kind of durational performance that happens in space and time with a collective of viewers. And I think that that aspect is really important in terms of like what it possibly opens up for its viewer, you know, what you do within the space it opens, you are a participant in in that process. And I think- generous. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, in a way, this is what a lot of films do, or maybe what all films do, but 10 Skies is like, 
doing it at the limit, you know, and in a very, very intense way where that becomes really what the work is about. Right. I want to talk about the chapter in which uh, you, you describe his work as political, as anti-war. The anti-war thing, I came across this remark. Uh, he, d- he just said in an interview that Ten Skies was an anti-war film. And I think when I read it, my jaw just like dropped on the floor because I thought it was such an outlandish thing to say about this film. Right. And he can be kind of provocative. It is super. And he's also he's also funny. And he I mean, playing again on that sort of like curmudgeonly like exactly. Bob Dylan kind of yeah. American artist idea. Exactly. And so then I thought, OK, this is really interesting. Um, I'm going to take this sort of as a prompt for one of the chapters to try and think about, you know, what would it mean to consider Ten Skies an anti-war film? And, you know, I think that Benning probably meant, you know, that this is a film that is very peaceful and clears the space for a kind of attention and thought, everything that we were just talking about. And in that sense, it's sort of a counter image of war and a counter image of also like war on television and spectacle culture. And um, that's fair. And I think that that is a really important part of the politics of experimental cinema. We can talk about the politics of representation and they are also very important, but that's not the only way a film can be political. And I really, really do believe in the sort of like formal politics of, of filmmaking as well. So that's one thing. But then I started thinking, well, like this film was made in 2004 it's the year of Abu Ghraib. It's like when drone warfare is like really starting to be a thing. And I started thinking about the fact that Ten Skies is a film that is made up of views from below. You know, and we hear a lot about the view from above. There have been exhibitions devoted to, you know, the kind of like history of aerial views in photography and cinema and so on. And it's super interesting, but I think we often, we, we, we basically never think about the view from below because it's quite a rare thing, um, but that's what this film is. And so I started thinking about this as sort of the inversion of the drone perspective and this as a sort of grounded film, really like looking up from a particular place. And, you know, the film was shot around where Benning lives. So it's a kind of local grounded film in that way as well. And I know that this is not what he meant when he called it an anti-war film. I asked him about it and he was like, oh, that's interesting. But like, no, absolutely not. But, you know, to me, that's fine. You know, I can still find that within it because, you know, filmmakers' intentions are important perhaps, but it's only like one part of what can go into understanding a film. So I was interested in sort of thinking about Ten Skies as a film, yeah, made in a moment of like the, the the war on terror, essentially. Yeah, and we talk about the world outside the frame creeping in, but the world outside the cinema also kind of creep or the or the gallery that you're watching this film in. Yeah, in 2004 certainly probably would have cre- crept in, especially in that eighth sky. I think when which is the chapter that you've we may have mentioned this already, but you've organized the book by so you have chapters for each sky. Yeah, I kind of like mirrored the form of the film back in in the form of the book. Um, And each chapter has a sort of description somehow of that sky because description was in fact one of the things I was very, very interested in thinking about in the writing of this book. And then from that description, somehow I jump off into one of these kinds of other, you know, sets of questions or concerns. And so the eighth sky is a kind of gloomy, sort of sinister looking sky. And Benning reuses audio from 13 Lakes um, and it's the sound of gunshots. And in 13 Lakes, I don't think they sound that sinister. It's kind of like, oh, someone might be hunting. I mean, maybe not amazing, you're still killing something, but it's like, okay. Whereas in um, 10 Skies, it's paired with this very somber kind of dark sky And the gunshots keep coming and coming and coming. And they're like howling animals. The dogs sound like more and more panicked. and Yeah, you really feel the sense that like something terrible is happening outside that frame. And so, you know, this led me to sort of use that as a way to lead into this question of, you know, the historical circumstances 
at the time of the film's release. Also thinking about the fact that this is a book in a series that tries to deal with a decade. You know, so in choosing Ten Skies also, I was interested in thinking about it as a work of its time. So in this respect, but also for instance, in the fact that it's one of the last 16 millimeter films that Benning made. And it really is a film, you know, you really feel like this is a monument to 16 millimeter at the moment of its eclipse. It is interesting that those last three films are basically kind of inspired by uh, early cinema and the use yeah. of the full reel. And they're sort of a goodbye to that possibility in his yeah. toolbox. It's like a return to the Lumiere, you know? And Benning even spoke about the film exactly in that way. Um, and I think it's it's very persuasive, this idea. Well, that Railroad, right, is basically a shot of a train coming into the station. Many trains, yeah. <laughs> many trains. <laughs> yeah. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. You know, a film like this would often be said to be very difficult to write difficult. about. Very much like it was difficult to make, I think. Difficult, if not like impossible to write about, because on the surface, again, just on the surface, there doesn't seem to be much going on. Like, are you just going to describe the clouds as they change colors? Is this just going to be kind of an exercise in ekphrasis in that way? So I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about your thinking there. I think that you set, I mean, I don't know if you set yourself, if you thought of this as a challenge in that way. Yeah, I agree. And that is partly, you know, what, what led me to take it on. And I sort of mentioned this in the book that I felt like it would be especially challenging to do. And that was why I had to do it. You know, I wrote, I was going on sabbatical um, and I was writing this book and I felt like it was just a time to challenge myself to write in a way that I hadn't really before. And so that was definitely a part of it. And it's interesting because, you know, there are some things that have been published on this film. Scott McDonald has published a great article about it and 13 Lakes together, but there's not a lot, you know, and there's much more. A lot of what I've read is just descriptions of how difficult it was to watch, or like warnings. It is a really intense, I find it to be a really intense experience, you know, and, and there's a question not just about how to put the images into words, but how to put your own experience into words. And so I sort of took that on as something to reflect upon in the book. So one of the skies kind of is about one of the skies, one of the chapters is about this question of like writing what it is to write about film and description and so on. And you compare also, you compare writing to video essays, I think in this. Yeah, in that this got chapter. me in a little bit of trouble. Oh yeah, did you get some? Yeah, I think I gather from the internet that um, some people that make video essays were not happy with the way that I described what they do, but. I would just say, you know, very, very strongly that I am not opposed to video essays and I did not set out to insult them or put them down or, or, or anything, but I think it is a different kind of activity. And I was interested in kind of making a case for the gap between image and text as something that should be seen not as a lack or a problem, but as something that could really be generative. The promise of video essays is the promise of just being able to show the thing itself. Right, right. You know? It's like an explainer. Yeah. And um, that can't happen in writing, you know? And that I think that does, it's not that that makes one better or worse than the other, but it means that they are very different. And it was that difference that I was trying to get at um, in this chapter. But I, I made the mistake, which I will completely own up to of beginning the chapter by saying so-called videographic criticism. And I really meant that that's what it's called. Like it's a kind of, you know, term of the trade. I didn't mean like, oh, so-called, like it's not really criticism. So I promise I would, I would admit it. 
So to Listeners, anyone, you know, take out note. there. Yeah. I'm setting the record straight. Right. We'll have to, you'll have to insert a correction into future editions. <laughs> but you also talk about the fact that you didn't include images deliberately or stills. It was not my choice. Would you have, if you had the choice, would you have in, included stills from 10 Skies? Maybe not. I don't know. I mean, it wasn't, it was never a question. Like I was basically told, you know, this is the format of this book series and none of them are going to have images. And so I didn't have to think about it. I think it's maybe better without images. I think I agree. Even for films that are more other bending films that are less just about skies or lakes, it, there's a, there's something missing. Like you're just getting like a, a small piece of something it doesn't really help you understand what's going on like it's really that duration that time that experience of time and that experience of images linked together i think that well i mean this is describing all cinema but but it is describing all cinema and i think it is like in general a problem that is you know that exists in like film publishing like how do you represent a film through you know one or two stills you know, it's always going to be really partial, but I do think that there is something, especially like about a film like this, you know, you completely lose any sense of really what it's doing when you reduce it to a single still. And so I think in a way it's sort of like better just not to try. And, you know, hopefully the kind of descriptions of the skies that are there generate some mental images for the readers, which may or may not correspond to what the, the, the images actually look like, but that's perhaps also interesting. So I want to talk also, I think we've kind of talked about this a little bit, but these films as being sort of Benning's goodbye to film as a medium and what came after. Ten Skies might be a marker of this divide in his, this, or Ten Skies and then uh, Railroad mm -hmm. after, but yeah. I would say from 13 Lakes maybe to Railroad as this sort of love letter to 16 millimeter, maybe a little bit. And again, how he uses that opportunity as a way to generate art rather than as a, as an end in itself. Yeah. So this is not the last film that Benning uh, made on 16 millimeter, but it's close to it. So right. he made railroad and then he ceased to work with photochemical film saying that it had just become too difficult because labs were closing down. It was hard to project, prints would come back scratched and so on. And so then he uh, moved to digital. And this might seem like completely unremarkable because it's like, yeah, as did many, many, many other people. But I think that Benning again is sort of a more extreme example of a broader tendency in the sense that, you know, he was so closely identified with 16 millimeter filmmaking and with kind of using the limitations of 16 millimeter as a way of structuring his work that for him to go digital just seemed like, you know, what? Like, like you too? Yeah. And so um, the first kind of major work that he made digitally was Roar, which was also like the first work that he made outside of the US. So it was made in the Roar Valley in Germany. And, you know, a big question with, with Benning is duration. And when you're working photochemically, there's a limit to how long the shot can be. So I think, you know, with Roar, it was like, but now he can just let the camera roll forever. And like, what is he gonna do? He can just have endless shots. And to a certain extent, he has kind of pursued that question. And he's made some very interesting films, I think, where he comes up with other rules to generate the shot length. So um, is it called 25 cigarettes, 20 cigarettes? I think it's 20 cigarettes. Yeah, where you know the film is that, um, but the length of each shot is determined by the time it takes for the person he's filming to, to smoke their cigarette. And the digital films also, like Roar, he also manipulated the image in various ways. Is Nightfall the one that's like the, like an extremely long shot of? Nightfall. Nightfall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so but I believe it's also digitally manipulated. Yeah. And so that's like a big change. And then another big change that's happened since 10 Skies is that Benning is working increasingly in a gallery context. And I think it's interesting to see 
that he is not just making the same works, but now showing them in a gallery. He's also kind of working in different ways that are more amenable to a gallery kind of context. So um, Two Cabins, which is this big project that he did making replicas of the Unabomber cabin and uh, Thoreau's cabin, which I talk a little bit about in the Ten Skies book. I think in the context of the, the, that, mascul- that discussion of masculinity too. Exactly you know, was an installation with lots of different components, some of which are video, but others, you know, are not like artist books. Um, these replicas of paintings by various self-taught artists. And I think it's very interesting to see him think about the kind of, you know, affordances of that space of the gallery um, and to work to work in response to it. So, you know, it's not just digital, but it's also like this architectural shift of the space of exhibition from the cinema to the gallery. But despite those two major shifts, in another sense, you know, the the concerns of the work are absolutely consistent. And it's like these same obsessions that we've been talking about that continue to play out throughout all the recent work as well. Yeah. And I think one of those obsessions is trying to understand how other people see the world, which is, you know, this interest in Kaczynski and Thoreau is this is an interest in looking at and very carefully trying to reconstruct their way of seeing the world in order to understand them. Yeah. And to understand their kind of acts of contestation. That's a, I mean, that is a very, one of his more explicitly political work, more so than Ten Skies. For sure. But I think, and I think I say this in the book somewhere, but the Two Cabins project for me is the place where we actually see Benning like laying out all the kind of major components of his sort of political and aesthetic creative universe. It's almost like, um, you know, a, a kind of like atlas of the things that we find dispersed. Each cabin was filled with the both the original books described like by Thoreau and Walden that were in his cabin and like what was found in Kaczynski's cabin, right? But also other books that Benning just wanted to include. And I think you mentioned also again that it was an exclusively male selection of writers. Like that was that was it. I guess I'd never really thought of that aspect of his work, but this but two cabins so seems so much to be about complicating Thoreau as this heroic woodsman. But, you know, and in Thoreau's defense, he complicates that image of himself quite a bit in Walden. Like, he's certainly aware of it and plays with it. But I think in that sense, comparing Thoreau to Kaczynski is something that Thoreau would have probably, you know, loved, I think. Well, and then the third, you know, the third figure in this comparison, of course, is Benning himself. Right, exactly. You know, because he builds replicas of their cabin on the land where his cabin is also situated. Right. And I'm actually not sure. I would have to go back and check whether the library itself is exclusively male. So he installed these libraries in the cabins and there's like a, an artist book that has like a list of all of the titles. And so he replicates the Kaczynski library and he adds his own books. But I think I quote Julie Alt from that book saying that it's exclusively a boys club, the dramatist personae of the Two Cabin Project. But I think that there she's referring to Thoreau, Kaczynski, and all of the autodidact artists that Benning copies and whose works kind of decorate the walls of these cabins. And certainly the library is overwhelmingly male. But I would have to go back and check to make sure maybe there's a, a title or two in there somewhere. Yeah. Well, okay. We won't. We, we won't make broad claims. Yeah. But I think that that's a that nonetheless. I think that there's an interesting exploration of American masculinity going on in that in that work and throughout his work. And a form of masculinity that is situated also like in opposition to state power but nonetheless, perhaps in other ways, still complicit with the kind of logic of, of violence, an ideology of autonomy, independence. You know, so it's like, I think he's really interested in digging into all of those kind of contradictions and complexities. I don't think he's interested in saying, you know, Thoreau, good, Kaczynski, right, bad. Right. It's exactly. not about that whatsoever. It's like really about kind of, delving into the ambivalence of these figures. 
and thinking about, you know, what they mean for kind of a national identity or a kind of counter tradition of American thinking and action. Yeah, that that counter tradition that is somehow part of the primary identity of Americans, I think, too. Yeah. And and Benning himself. And Benning himself, yeah. yeah. And which is a career long obsession of his, you know, American dream. Exactly. One of his best films, I think, which more people need to see. Yeah. I I would I would like it to screen again sometime. Hopefully sure. that yeah. will come around. I think you have a couple events coming up, right? Related to the book. Do you want to talk about those? On July 1st at Light Industry in Brooklyn, there'll be a screening of the film. And then on August 1st, there's an outdoor screening at the House Circle Tour in Der Welt in Berlin, which should be very special. And then in early September, there'll be a screening here in London at the Open City Docs Festival. And all of these are um, the same print from Arsenal in Germany. So it's like there's a, it's making the rounds at the moment. Cool. Yeah, I can't wait to see it next week. Not on YouTube. Neither can I. I haven't seen. I wrote this whole book without seeing the print again. Right. Which you talk about, where you talk about using the YouTube rip, <laughs> which is really bad. It's really bad. And <laughs> really bad. But. Okay, so we can. I, I do want to talk about this a little bit because I think this is really interesting. You know, I feel like, again, this fetishization of 16 millimeter, we've talked a little bit about it and like how he dropped it and then it was, it was like Jude, a Judas moment. But I think watching these films on bad rip YouTube copies uh, is also strangely like fascinating. Like you become involved in a different in watching a different movie, maybe. And the image is so different and is so distorted and pixelated that what you're watching, what I'm paying attention to is maybe not what I would be paying attention to at the six, a pristine 16 millimeter print. But the, uh, nonetheless, I'm paying attention to an image, a, a shifting image. Yeah. And you're able to see something, you know, seeing something is better than seeing nothing. Well, what does he say in your book? I think you you sharing talk to him is and caring. Like, sharing is caring, right? I mean, I think it's amazing that it's available on YouTube. It's incredible. Um, it also as is thirteen likes, by the way. Yeah, it, but it looks terrible. You know, it looks terrible. And again, I think I keep coming back to this thing with Benning in general, but Ten Skies in particular, where there are so many things that are sort of like maybe true of cinema in general or film culture in general. But in this case, it's like pushed to an extreme. And again, you know, of course, it's always different to watch something on YouTube than it is to watch it in the cinema or, you know, on film versus digitally or whatever it might be. But this experience of seeing the YouTube copy really makes us understand something about what's at stake in that difference. Um, and so I was interested in kind of like fleshing that out a little bit because people, I think, sometimes, you know, think of Benning as some, yeah, like Luddite or photochemical purist. And I think like nothing could be farther from the truth. So I, I was very interested to kind of trace the digital afterlives of Ten Skies because there are more of them than just this, this YouTube video. I mean, the other thing that, that I found really interesting was looking at the comments, the yeah. YouTube comments. <laughs> and I think that there's a uh, a Benning appropriation film to be made there. I'm sure he's probably already collected them and um, or a lecture of some kind, because I think that there's there are little notes that pinpoint contrails, and so I think there are people, you know, which is a conspiracy theory that I'm not totally familiar yeah. with. But you know, people are watching this as a documentary about the skies and trying to suss out some pattern of contrails and uh, chemtrails, right? I think they're called right. the chemtrails. It's quite disturbing, in fact, because it speaks to this kind of, I think, preponderance of conspiratorial thinking, which is really a great characteristic of our time. A great meaning prominent, not as in right, right. excellent. One of the best. I think it's one of the <laughs> one best, of the best current thing. things happening. It's, it's about time, really, mm. that these chemtrails were revealed for what they are. Which I have no idea what the actual theory is. But I think that that's just like a movie like this existing in that space, I think just opens up a whole nother realm of, of Benning, Benning-esque thinking that, that I think could really be picked out a lot more. 
I've really also come to recognize in like working on this book and talking to different people that there are so many kind of myths and caricatures about Benning. But, you know, when you really look at the body of work, like they all kind of crumble. Right. The variety of, of modes that he's worked in and mediums that he's worked with is really kind of staggering. It's a very common thing that, you know, avant-garde filmmakers of a particular generation who had always worked in photochemical film, then at a certain moment start working digitally. And I think in very few instances has it, you know, um, yielded the kind of like interesting, fascinating result that it has with Benning. I mean, Peggy Awash is another filmmaker that I think has like made that transition in extremely fascinating ways. But she, from the very start, has always been kind of like working in all kinds of different formats in very kind of like radically impure ways. Whereas Benning was always sort of considered to be so devoted to 16 millimeter that, you know, he, he, he offers a slightly different case. He's always said that it was a way of, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but 16 millimeter was like a blue collar way of making a movie. He could do it by himself. As long as that was the way he knew how to do it, he was going to continue to use that until it became an elitist way of making. That's it. And I guess that's like, that's a great example of this kind of like myth that I was talking about. Like people think of him as like the purist who's interested in the pristine, expensive medium of 16 millimeter. But it's like, well, 16 millimeter was introduced in 1923, I think, as a kind of um, you know, amateur gauge. And it was meant to be more affordable and like that people could use it themselves in the home context. And of course, all of those kind of meanings and economic material realities of the medium are now no longer with us. But they were there when Benning began to use this. And I think it's important, you know, he does not he has never worked in the professional gauge of 35 millimeter, you know, it was 16. And, you know, that I think it's like, it's true of the kind of experimental film tradition in general, you know, that this was a practice that was happening in what was essentially an amateur gauge. And it was setting out a kind of mode of production that was in antithetical relationship to the kind of commercialism, professionalism, and you know, massive capital-intensive mode of production of narrative cinema. But that fetishization of the of sixteen millimeter, I think, came after the fact by from outside. But what's interesting is also that he didn't just disregard the the capabilities of the tool. He like pushes his his work to investigate the very limits of what that tool is capable of, and use that as sort of a generative force within within the work. For sure. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Erica, and uh, hopefully see you in New York. Yeah, as long as, you know, I can jump through all the COVID era hoops, I will be there. I can't wait. Watch out for chemtrails in the in the skies. <laughs> the Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center since 1962. Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.